Welcome everyone to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, everyone. This is Ray McKinley. Welcome to our weekly podcast, Ride the Elephant Today. Really glad you joined us. I'm especially excited and looking forward to the conversation I'm going to have with a longtime friend, Bill Turner. Bill and I have had a great relationship over the years. We've had a lot of deep conversations. And I think what draws us together is our interest in preparing young adults for life. And I was really excited about that because we oftentimes get into that arena of discussion as we talk about the 12 dichotomies that we have been talking about over the past few weeks. So I'll tell you a little bit about Bill. Bill is the Director of College and Career Readiness Programming for the Troy School District. He has gone through the gamut of education as an English teacher, school counselor, vice principal and principal, and now a director. His education has spanned over 25 years of experience. So, Bill, say good morning. It's really exciting to have you here with us today. Good morning, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, Bill, you know, as I've been talking about this, and I've done some teaching as well in the high school level of seniors, and we've talked about that quite a bit. I taught a class on character development and how important it is in life and as you approach and come into the workplace. And you always were interested in that topic. But you have spent a good part of your career doing exactly that, preparing young people for college and life. So I would really like to get into a conversation with you about how do we continue to teach young people to always examine their life instead of just conforming to the patterns of the world. So I'll let you begin as you reflect on that and some of the other conversations we've had. Well, I think I would start by saying I think one of the things that's always fascinated me about you and your career is that you've appreciated, despite maybe not being an educator, that as adults, no matter what profession we're in, we're all hopefully obligated to do the same thing with our youth, and that is impress them with some of the things that we have learned through our own journeys with a very important topic of character development. And not being an educator doesn't mean that you don't have that responsibility and can't do a lot in bestowing what you have learned along the way that can help them. So I think it's always been very impressive to me that you find the time to give back in you know the different high schools that you've been doing your character development classes. And I really think that that type of learning is something that should be a requirement in all public education, which is my background. You know, I haven't ever been in the private schools, but, you know, they carry themselves in, in much the same way. And I think that character development is a missed opportunity if you're not requiring all students to have that type of learning experience. And I think it's becoming more important today than it was maybe 50, even 25 years ago with how quickly things are moving in this fast-paced world because of technology and all the things that we have available to us as a world. Character development has become even more important because I think the young people need to really be in tune with their own mindset and You know, having resilience and having the ability to kind of see through all of the noise and the negative influences that are out there so that they can sort of know when to listen and know when to learn and know when to sort of adjust and kind of take positives from otherwise negative experiences 
you know, I think that that's all the sort of message of what I think your book is about, which is sort of changing your mindset with how you learn, how you treat people, how you respond to adversity, how you can just reflect as a human being so you can be your own best self. You know, it's a very difficult thing to do. And I think in education, we miss that opportunity unless we just take it upon ourselves to do that in our individual classrooms or in our individual buildings that we might lead in. I think that's very well said, Bill. I appreciate the comments you've made and the reflections you've had on my work. Thank you for that. One of the things that I've experienced when I just went into teaching was the challenge young people had with critical thinking. It's oftentimes their thinkers go to really what I call canvassing the opinion of others. They spend more time canvassing the opinions of their friends and parents and even teachers. And I know that's part of learning, and we do that early on in our learning experience. However, there's a time in our life as we get older to transition from depending on what everyone else is suggesting we do to really thinking at a critical level. What do you find is the hindrance or what keeps young people from really critically thinking at a high level? Because I know that's something you would want to prepare them for as they go off to college. And the reason I say that, too, it isn't just my observation. Many of the colleges have reported back to the high schools and say, you know, you're sending us students that just don't have any ability to critically think. And you need to do more critically thinking in your educational platforms. I know, for example, the one school I taught at, they kind of were really excited about getting an exemplary status in their accreditation. They met all the parameters of the board to get that exemplary status. But what happened was they didn't get it. And their one shortcoming was they needed to do a better job of teaching critically thinking. It was not a part of their focus. And I thought, interesting. You know, of course, my whole class was about critically thinking, but I've only reached a very small percentage of the students in their senior year. And they were talking about, you need to develop critical thinking skills as freshmen through senior year to prepare the kids for college. What has been your experience with that particular issue of putting purposeful intention on developing critically thinking skills in the young students? Well, first of all, I think there's a trend in education right now that you've been hitting on for years. So in, in many ways, you're beyond your time with regards to what you've been trying to bring to the school that you've been invited into to do the character building and your critical thinking learning for a long time. And I think we're still behind for a long time as an educational institution in this country. Anyway, we have been sort of guided top down. You know, there's diplomats that sort of make decisions on the accountability measures that make sure that the funding that goes into schools that our taxpayers provide through their hard work, that this money is appropriated and accounted for based on the standards or measurements that say that they're doing a high-quality job. And I think that those measurements are what need to change because those measurements don't necessarily require you to be critical thinkers. They require you to be rote memory learners. They require you to be good taskmasters, good listeners, they require you to be responsible from a learning standpoint, you know, coming to school every day, doing as you're told, doing your homework, studying for your test. But what they don't do is they don't require you as an institution to prove that the competencies that are directly connected to critical thinking, they don't have any real measuring stick 
for showing whether or not you're actually growing your learners from that standpoint and what the world, what the industries, your dentistry, for instance. When you hire a new young person, you're not looking at their SAT score or their ACT score. You're not looking at how well they did in any one particular class. You're looking at how good their communication skills are, how good their collaboration skills are, how good their customer service is, how good are they under pressure, how good can they respond to your needs as the leader of that building in times of busyness or whatever. I mean, there's a million different things that I think can sort of be indirectly related to, I think, their own critical thinking. And I think until there is a different way of measuring from the top down how schools are really truly held accountable for critical thinking until that measuring stick is created. I don't know that schools can, from a system standpoint, really build something that they can invest the amount of time in that really changes the attitudes and the overall growth of their learners because there's too many other things that they're directly held accountable for that affect their day-to-day operations. Their ability to continue to get that funding that is so important to the building, the school, the district, being able to continue to thrive. So I don't know if that makes sense to you, but for my, that might be a little bit too educationally rooted. But from my perspective, that's been my biggest frustration. And that perspective comes from my last five years of being sort of a district team leader in some of the global partnerships that we have with other educational institutions around the world. I've collaborated with school districts from everywhere from Africa to Denmark to Australia to New Zealand. And what I've learned from the countries that I think are doing it really well at a really high level, hitting on these competencies that you're mentioning, critical thinking and resilience and character, those countries that are doing it better, what I've found is they have countries that trust their educational leaders more. So, you know, the governing bodies don't make the rules that hold the educational systems accountable. The educational leaders do, and they work collaboratively with those governing bodies so that you're evolving quicker and you're not stuck in some sort of stagnant governing system, if that makes sense. So I think that's what would need to change in this country. I don't know how easy that is to do, because you're asking your politicians to take a step back and trust the educational leaders more so they can evolve and still be held accountable in that evolving process. You know, it's interesting you laid that out the way you did. And I really have experience with seeing that top-down management play out. When I was brought in to teach this class, I was not a certified teacher. And so if this was a special consideration to have me there as a dentist teaching concepts to the students. And I was blessed to have an administrator that saw this as an opportunity to bring in a perspective that was different than what the usual perspective was in the academic setting. And I remember many, many situations came up where I would throw things out to the students. You know, they'd tell me something that they got from another teacher, another fact, or they were supposed to think this way. Because what I found is teachers did the thinking for the students. They did the critical thinking. So they taught the students what to think, but not how to think. So I would sit there and say, you know, you guys have done their critically thinking for them instead of letting them go through the process of analyzing, evaluating, apply and 
reconsider and create their own thoughts and create their own dynamic. So what I would get from many of the other teachers would be a lot of complaints about, well, Dr. McKinley's saying this and Dr. McKinley's saying that, but it would always come back in the end to the head administrator and he'd just chuckle and he'd call me and say, you know, I just want you to keep doing what you're doing. They'll figure it out. This is good for them to have this frustration because you're bringing something to that school that I've been wanting to bring for a long time and you're doing it. And I kept saying, yeah, you're not paying me enough to do this. <laughs> and he wasn't paying me anything because I was volunteering. Yeah, right, right. So, but it was kind of funny how that played out. And I would constantly challenge the kids. But oftentimes they'd come to me with a pontification about a point. And I'd say, well, tell me about it. Why do you believe that? And I said, that isn't true. And actually I believed it, but I said it wasn't true. I was playing a devil's advocate. And I would just pull their chain and they'd get so mad because I would say this. And then he'd go down the hall and say, well, Dr. McKinley said this and Dr. McKinley said that. Other teachers would come to me, why are you telling the student something different than we're telling them? And I said, well, you'll figure that out someday. So, you know, I mean, I was not real popular with some of the teachers because I was oftentimes throwing this issue right back in their face. But really what happened was I was able to really get the students to see what critically thinking was and how they were oftentimes just listening to the dogma of what was being presented to them and took it on as dogma. And I said, it's only dogma because you haven't thought about it. Now, when you critically think it through, you may come to the exact same conclusion your teacher did, and oftentimes you will. However, if you critically think it through, it's no longer dogma. It's what you believe. So oftentimes it was hard to separate out that for the student to get them to really self-examine some of the things that were being presented and get them to critically think it through. It's interesting. I taught it for 15 years. It took me about 14 and a half years to figure it out, Bill. So, <laughs> Wow. So you I didn't mean, start out going in there with that. Okay. No, I did not. I knew what I was getting from the applicants that were coming in to work for me out of high school. I knew they didn't know how to think. I knew they weren't prepared. They didn't have the character skills to come and work in the workplace. So that was my impetus to go back and say, okay, I can complain about this and keep listening to my peers complain about it and listen to every other business owner complain about it or do something about it. And that was the impetus for me to go back and do this in part. However, I really didn't know the why. I just knew my observation was this is what was happening. But when I got there, it started to all make sense to me. And of course, I played the devil's advocate and really started challenging the students to critically think. So, you know, I talk in my book about red behavior and blue behavior. And we've talked about that a little bit. You know, I always try to, when I talk about the dichotomy of our choice, we all fall on a dichotomy when we make choices and decisions, and we can fall to the red side and the blue side, or maybe a negative side to the positive side. I don't like using the word negative and positive, because we're all fitting in somewhere on the continuum. So I talk about red teachers and blue teachers. Among other things, I talk about red friends and blue friends, and I talk about red students and blue students. But I think one of the things that I would want the listener to consider is what they can do is, you know, we can look at this and point the finger at teachers and point the fingers at educators and point the finger at politicians as the reason that we are in the situation we're in. However, that may not change as quick as we need it to change. But one thing we can change, how we individually respond to that situation. 
So I want the listener maybe to get some ideas of what they can do to transition from being a red student to a blue student, or if there's a teacher listening to be transitioning from a red teacher to a blue teacher. And this applies to being a red boss and a blue boss and a red friend and a blue friend. So as we look at that, what are your thoughts about that dichotomy being stated in that way? You mentioned to me the other day that you had another term that you use for that dichotomy. So explain that a little bit and so we can kind of build that into our discussion. Well, so I think what you're referring to is I said that's very similar, you know, the red and the blue that you describe in your book. It struck me as being very similar to what I've been trying to aspire to be more like as an educational leader with my staff. And ultimately, the goal is my students is to have a growth mindset as it applies to learning versus a fixed mindset. And what that really means, which you explain, you really break it down in your book and in so many ways through how you explain it, but also through your like real life, I forget what you call them, if they're case studies or real life examples. Personal but, experiences but, that we all personal have. Personal experiences, yes. yeah. Now, give one example that I can recall from your book that you had when you were in college about a professor, I think it was a chemistry class. It's been some time since I read the book, but I remember this specific scenario that you explained because I had a similar one, but I don't think I approached it the way that you did in my time because I think of my own fixed mindset. So you described being in a chemistry class and sort of struggling with following along with the professor at first, and you had noticed another student during discussions in the class that the other students seemed to always kind of contribute the right answer, and you would sit passively and listen because you didn't know the right answer, and you would sort of try to engage, but you were struggling with getting there. And so you just took a leap of faith one day and decided, you know, I can't be passive here. I'm not going to be able to get to where this guy needs me to get to. I need to engage more. So I'm going to raise my hand and give the wrong answer or the answer you thought it was that you assumed was the wrong answer. You did that and you found through the professor's response to you, that engagement, that discourse that happened actually sort of turned the light bulb on for you that I think sort of helps explain the greatest difference between the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. The growth mindset, or the blue learner, does not fear being wrong. They are more interested in the learning process and the growth that comes from that journey versus holding back from taking any type of journey at all unless you know where you're going on that journey. And that's the fixed mindset. So the students and the teachers in the educational system in general for years has been sort of built on the fixed mindset. It's getting to the right answer as part of the learning journey. And what we know now is that that limits innovation, that limits creativity, that limits character when you think that way. But I think education was sort of built in a time period where, you know, the industrial revolution was a time period where we needed students and we needed teachers to sort of be built for that type of learning or that type of mindset, where you did sort of follow rules, be able to understand rules, be able to demonstrate that you understand those rules, that you can be punctual, that you can follow multiple orders throughout the day, that you can keep track of the different directions that are given to you. That was kind of the industrial revolution. Well, we have long moved beyond that because we are in an industry now that is all about 
leveraging technology in really profound ways to create the next thing. And all of these different industries need that from our current students, but more importantly, our future students. We need them to be completely free of the limitations that I think a fixed mindset or a red learning delivery or mindset will hold you back from. And that is the opportunity to sort of stretch yourself and get to a greater thing that hasn't even been thought of yet or developed yet. So for me, the thing that I have tried to do as a leader is sort of break that mold from all of our teachers that were brought up in that type of learning system. You know, that's what colleges taught them as educators. And that's what they brought to the classroom, sort of that master of content sort of leadership style. And that's where they've lived. And so when you were saying that these teachers were pushing back on you, you know, I think you learned this, but they weren't pushing back on you because they didn't like something you were doing. They didn't understand what you were doing. And it was contrary to what they've been taught and what they have lived in. And so they're in this sort of bubble with these students that they're managing every day. They don't have time to sort of evolve the way that you are sort of challenging them because they're dealing with those students every day. They're dealing with the expectations of the parents every day. They're dealing with the expectations of those governing bodies every day, and that's all they have time for. So for them to reinvent themselves, really reinventing themselves so they can help reinvent their students, they would have to have that time to have that aha moment the way that you did. You said it took you 14 years. It took you 14 years, and you were doing this as sort of a philanthropic endeavor, but also you didn't want to sit back and just complain. You wanted to do something about it. Well, they probably would do that if they had the time and they had the value of seeing that if they did this, they wouldn't be somehow punished or scrutinized. And they don't believe that, or at least they haven't for a long time. I think it is slowly changing, but it's not changing as rapidly as you, a businessman, needs it to change. So I think the concepts that you bring to your book maybe the quickest way to do this is to give copies of your book to just every single educator and make your politicians read it too, because everybody will agree with it. I don't think there's any person that would disagree with the power of being a blue learner or a blue leader versus a red. But I think the power is in how you can break it down and explain why it works and why it's so necessary, because then the real thinking becomes How do you put that into a system? How do you engage the educators and how they engage the students? How do you hold them accountable? How do you show the exemplars that prove that it's working? Like there is a whole system that needs to be thought of, that needs to be created, and that it needs to be sort of lived in so that it really can provide the dividends that I think you have been providing to your students now for a long period of time. I think you've seen it, right? I think you could probably give examples of what the students are able to do through the journey that they have with you. And I think it's that type of thinking that you really could move some mountains if you could sort of give that to other educators so that they know this isn't some sort of philosophical endeavor. There's a real applicable learning style that you could not only demonstrate, but you could actually show how it's growing students' mindsets. And there are those examples. There are those exemplars. There are those narratives that you could probably share. And I think we could probably build that out that way. You know, it's interesting. 
listening to you talk reminds me of some of the experiences I had. I remember one time, and this happened multiple times, and one of the teachers said, well, you know, you can't do that. And they always would report to me that as a teacher, you can't do that. You can't eat in the library, which I did. And you can't let a student come to class with too short of a dress. You can't do this. You can't do that. And they always refer to this teacher's handbook. And I would say, well, I never got a teacher's handbook. I don't know what that is. You don't have a teacher's handbook? I said, no, I don't. How could you teach here without a teacher's handbook? I don't know. We should probably go talk to the superintendent and see what he says. So we walk in the superintendent's office, and the teacher says, Dr. McKinley doesn't have a teacher's handbook. And he looked at her and said, well, yes, he doesn't have a teacher's handbook, and I'm not going to give him a teacher's handbook. If I gave him a teacher's handbook, he wouldn't read it anyways. And then he wouldn't follow the rules anyways. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter if he has a teacher's handbook or not. They were so vested in me bringing in a different perspective that they didn't want me contaminated by the teacher's handbook, which is the top-down thing you're talking about. And I give so much credit to Dr. Herzog for having the wisdom to do that. He was also a part-time professor at Wayne State University in the doctorate program. So he saw, and he kept saying to me, Ray, what you're teaching these seniors, we're trying to teach at the postgraduate level. And it's something that's really missing in education. So he got a big kick out of when I got all the teachers riled up because he said, you're going to change the way these teachers teach in the end. And I think to a great degree it did. I had one chemistry teacher come to me and say, why do you do this? I'm about to retire. I'm just getting fed up. These kids don't want to learn. The kids don't want to do this. Kids don't want to do that. And he's just really frustrated. And they said, so what do you do? You seem to just really enjoy it. Your students really enjoy your class. And I said, well, I never make them wrong. They're always right. Well, they're not always right. And I said, yeah, the right answer is the answer that's in their mind right now. That's the answer. And that's where I start from where they're at. Yes, it may not be the answer in the end that we want, but I'm starting there. And I process the person out of that place to a better place of understanding. So I never make the person wrong. I just see it as an opportunity to move them forward. Uh, we had some great discussions about getting your students to critically think. That was in the summer. And he went back to school. At the end of the year, I said, how are you doing with your teaching this year? I'm having a ball. I'm just having a great time. I just feel like I'm spending so much time processing kids. I haven't got through all the stuff that we're supposed to get through. My AP class, they're going to take the AP test. And I think they're not prepared to take this AP test because I didn't get through all the material because I spent so much time teaching them, processing them, and critically thinking and those kinds of things. And I said, well, let's see what happens. After the test scores came back a couple weeks later, I said, how'd your students do? I had the best results I ever had in my AP class. They had the highest accumulative scores that I've ever had. And I said, why do you think that is? He said, I don't know. I said, is it possible they came across a question on the test that they didn't have the road answer? But instead of freezing and saying, I don't know the answer, they started to critically think. And in the process of critically thinking, they came up with a better answer. Well, I would challenge your thinking on that. I think you're right. But I think it's probably more than that. I think it was probably that because he took this different approach, Instead of just sort of trying to get, you know, like we said earlier, masters of content, AP classes are notorious for this because they give you the deliverables on the front end, all yeah. these content areas that you got to cover. Instead right. of this guy just being led by that, 
he was being led by how he was engaging students from where they were at, like you said. And so those students probably were more plugged in than they ever have been before. They probably retained more than they ever had before. So I think it's probably a combination of what you suggested and what that is, you know, and more teachers could benefit from that. And that's the unfortunate thing that I think you stumbled upon right away when you started doing this, when there was pushback on, well, you can't teach because you don't have the highly qualified status that the state and the federal government requires you to have before you can teach. That's absurd that we still look at it that way. I don't want to get political, but Governor DeSantis, so I'm not saying I'm a fan of it or not, but Governor DeSantis is the teacher shortage in his state. Well, and I think it's probably most states that are going to be seeing this. Certainly this state is dealing with it. But his way of trying to fix it, because he can't wait for people to go through the expensive and arduous process of becoming a highly qualified teacher, he is giving breaks to veterans, I think. I mean, this is an article I read yesterday, but he's going to give money incentives and breaks, flexibility from this governance that usually disallows industry people to come in and teach because he's trying to help veterans who are struggling to get back on their feet. And he's also trying to help the teacher shortage. And so he is going to allow these veterans to come in and teach without having their teaching certificate. And there's pushback from the teacher unions or oh, these sure. narratives yeah. that are saying, well, this is going to water down education or these students are not going to get the same high quality experience. And I don't agree with that. I think that they're going to get more opportunities of having their own potential Dr. McKinley, who is bringing in the very real world right now need that those students need to prepare for versus somebody who spent their entire career in a classroom outside of the industry, not knowing how the world is evolving unless they take it upon themselves to have conversations with people like you or seek professional Mm -hmm. development with industry partnerships so they can actually learn how the world is sort of moving at a pace that requires them to maybe rethink their daily practice of how they engage their learners. And what I think they would find is they would be very similar to what you're doing, which is be less about hammering kids with points and grades Mm -hmm. because that does create the fixed mindset that limits kids from extending themselves, extending their learning to be vulnerable in a classroom learning engagement exercise because they're afraid of being wrong. If we could sort of honor where they're at and push them to go further with where they could go, like you're saying, I think what we're going to get is we're going to get a much more empathic and critical thinking type individual that when they're self-actualized, they walk in this world in a way that makes them the better collective human citizen, you know, that's going to contribute to our society in ways that we need them to, because we quite frankly do not know what the world is going to look like five years from now, but we need our students to be ready for that. And they're not going to be ready for that if they're doing things through, you know, the red or fixed mindset learning system that sort of is currently maybe in transition phase. You know, I'd like to give credit to educational leaders around the world that I think recognize the way that your administrator recognizes they're not unique. They're not the only ones. I think you could find you would be embraced. I'll tell you right now, if you went to the Troy School District and offered your class and said that you wanted to engage students with this, there would be many administrators that would welcome you and appreciate 
what you would be able to develop with students. And I can speak to that district, but I'm sure there's many other districts because I collaborate with a lot of them, and they would really gravitate to the experiences that you've had, and they would not give you resistance. They would give you support, especially when teachers that might be confused or even resistant to what students are coming to them with from you, they would support you in the same ways that I think your school district has. Interesting, this chemistry teacher, you know, he was the head of the science department, and he said, my earth science teacher was struggling with her class, and I took the concepts that you taught me and sat down and had a conversation with her about thinking about application more than content. Put the content down, create the application, get the students to critically think, pose questions for them, give them an opportunity to give their wrong answer, and then use that and build from that. And he said, and I changed their whole experience. And she had a great year teaching from that perspective. So I think when the message gets out there and teachers really are given the freedom and opportunity to do those kinds of things, because like you say, when they're so programmed from the top down, it's hard for them to reverse course after doing it for so many years. And of course, when I come in and present the antithesis of that, what they've been taught, it creates a challenge for the teachers. I'm glad to hear you say that you're in a school district, which is a huge school district, much bigger 16, than the district. 16,000 students, so yeah, it was yeah. very big. And that's quite a testament to the leadership you have at that institution to start considering that and would be open to a teacher like me to come in and present a different way of presenting and start getting to teach the kids from our perspective how to learn and to look at it differently. You know, we've talked a lot about teachers and we talked a lot about administrations, but I want to focus a little bit on the student because I believe that the student has personal responsibility. I talk about red students and blue students, and I think we have allowed these red students to exist, and it's almost by the way we teach and the way our parents expect and what the testing expects. Red students, I talk about, they're basically trying to do the bare minimum. They think of homework as something they have to do, not as an opportunity to learn more. They have to do it. So they begrudge it, they resist it, they reject it. They don't think that they're responsible for their own learning. That's up to the teacher to teach, and I can only learn what the teacher teaches me, which is not true. Red students feel that way, but blue students don't. They aren't there to seek knowledge and wisdom. They're just there to get information, to pass the test and get a grade. They're not there to critically think, and they just oftentimes say, I don't want to think that hard. So what can we do to prepare students better to expect to be taught how to think and to self-examine and learn for the right reason, learn because they want to learn and apply their knowledge and have the mentorship from the teacher as they walk through applying their knowledge and critically thinking things through where they have a teacher who's coaching them to figure it out. What can we do to create blue students in the academic world? I hate to say it because it's a really difficult ask of our society in order to do this, you know, to your question, we have to first educate our red and blue parents, their red and blue parenting, because if you have a red parenting style raising that child, you know, we're talking from their begetting, you know, their birth. If you have someone that has a red mindset as a parent, then that's going to instill that 
same sort of learning into that child, and then that child is going to take that into their school. And when they have their first blue teacher, they're going to be uncomfortable. They're going to be frustrated. They might even be adversarial to that type of teacher and think that teachers know what they're doing or that teacher is confusing and I don't like them. Or maybe they like them, but they just don't ever really engage in what the teacher is really trying to get from them because they're constantly seeking what you said. They're constantly seeking the shortest route or the quickest path to the solution because that's what they've been taught is they have to complete tasks. They have to do as they're told. And then they can go on and have fun. Then they can get the grade. Then they can get the reward or whatever. That's what they're seeking because they don't associate their learning with growth of self or satisfaction of self or being fun. They don't see it that way because of how they were raised. So to answer your question, the way that we do it is I think we first have to get our parents educated to try to be more open-minded to how they parent because their parenting comes from what's been modeled to them. Their parenting comes from how they were educated. And, and the more successful you become in life, the more established in your opinion and the more resistant you become to any different type of opinion. So if you've got somebody that's very successful being raised in the red learning style and they were raised by the red parenting and they were successful, then how would you ever be able to convince that parent to be different and how they raise their child. It would be that much more difficult. And unfortunately, I think that's what we're facing right now. We're at that sort of crossroad. I think educators are on board with this. I think they see it, especially coming out of COVID. I think they realize they got to transform just to keep kids engaged. They got to be yeah. different. But even when they try to be different, I think they're now, they're standing up against the opposing force of how that child is coming in with what's being modeled and raised at home. So that's the answer, I think. It's unfortunately not an answer that has easy paths of success in making it happen because to get to parents, you have a much bigger job ahead of you. I agree with that. It's very astute that you point that out, and it is a tough one to fix. It reminded me of a story of an experience I had in the classroom. This happened to be with one of my students who was actually the son of the principal of the school. So he's an all-A student. He, I think he was the salutatorian of the class. Bright, bright kid. So, you know, I would be challenging him to write some things and challenges to critically think. And he would just get bullheaded against it and resisted it. And I challenged him in front of the class. And he finally said, Dr. McKinley, just tell me what you want me to know for the test. I can prepare for the test and get my A. That's all I'm asking. Just tell me. And he said this, you know, in maybe the first month of the second semester. And so I said, Jordan, I'll tell you what, here's my PowerPoint. You haven't seen this PowerPoint because I don't teach by the PowerPoint method, although I prepared a PowerPoint to teach by the PowerPoint method, but I don't use it. But here it is. It's 385 pages. Here's the flash drive. Go into the library, study it. And when you get it done by the end of May, I'll give you a test on the PowerPoint and then you can get your grade. He said, okay, I'll do that. And I said, okay. The next morning, I bring the flash drive in. I gave him and set it up in the library. And I said, if you have any questions, come and talk to me. He stayed in there for about three days. And then he came to me and said, Dr. McKinley, I think I want to come back into the class. And I said, tell me why. He said, well, I think I prefer to think about these things more than just memorize them. And I said, all right, let's do that. 
And he came back in and he was engaged. He was ready. He wasn't afraid to throw out the wrong answer. We had some great discussions. He challenged me as a student, which I love, student who challenges me. So we had a great experience. And I saw him just last summer and he lives in Vegas now with his parents. And he said, Dr. McKinley, that was the best class and the best lesson I've ever had in all my academic experiences. He said, it taught me so much. And, you know, it's a grateful feeling when so many of my past students can come to me and say, I learned something there I never would have learned in all my academic settings. And it really prepared me to be a better student. It prepared me for life. And I think, well, that's good. That kind of was my goal. And it was very important for me to do that. So I think we can test these young men and young women, and we can give them more credit than we are currently giving them to figure it out. And I think that's what I'd like to see more of, if we could, in this process of encouraging young people to transition from red behavior to blue behavior and to transition from being a red student to a blue student. Any final thoughts, Bill, as our time is winding down? I really enjoyed yep. your comments and discussion. Tell me some of your final thoughts, and we'll wrap it up here. Well, I guess, you know, my final thoughts are that it's sad if we have to think about the experience like this young man that you described, that this learning that he had is so limited to a person that actually was outside the realm of those that are considered experts to give him that same experience, but yet didn't. And I think what really strikes me is what you're able to do these other adults could do it too. They just need to be given the opportunity and they need to be supported in why it's so important. You know, we're not trying to eliminate everything we've done that we've found to be successful over the past hundred years in education, but shame on us if we're not evolving as quickly as the world is. You know, the world is moving at a much faster rate with how it's innovating and creating than ever before. And the basis of continuing that movement and really having it be in sync with the innovation that we need, it lies in our educational institutions. So we need to partner more with humans like you instead of thinking that we have all the answers in our college institutions that are bringing up our teachers. I think we have to continue to think about how that can be extended so that we can invite in different leaders, different mentors into the learning experience and collaborate with our quote-unquote teacher professionals so that they can evolve, so that our parents can evolve, and all of that is so that our students can evolve at the rate that we need them to so we can really thrive in this uncertain future. So I appreciate what you do, Dr. McKinley. That's why I said I'd be happy to come on. After reading your book, it was clear to me that you really have some great insight that I just wanted to help affirm from the education side of things. So I feel like I was able to do that a little bit. And I'd love to continue to think about how we could grow as two different men that have the same interest in mind. And that is how we can give back to students and their families so that we can grow old and live with people that are going to take care of us. Because <laughs> it's about us yes. at the end of the day, right? <laughs> we do have to start thinking about that. We, yes, do. we do. Absolutely. So thank yes. you for the opportunity to talk with you today. Yeah, thank you, Bill. And thank you, everyone else, for joining us on Ride the Elephant today. Feel free to send your questions and concerns to me at ray at raymckinley.com. And again, thanks, Bill. Everyone else, have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Dr. Ray McKinley is a speaker, author, and coach. In his new book, Ride the Elephant, 
The Journey to True Success, Dr. McKinley addresses the crisis in personal leadership and what you can do about it. Thank you for joining us today. Your feedback is important to us, and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week. Thank you.